Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Animal Behavior Podcast. I'm Matthew Zippel. And I am Maximiliano Zulago Forero, a graduate student in the Neurobiology and Behavior Department, Cornell University. In this week's episode, we speak with Dr. Jimena Bernal, Professor of Biological Sciences at Purdue University. Jimena is a bilingual Latina scientist, so this week we are going to try something new. We will be releasing two versions of this episode, one in English and one in Spanish. What you're about to hear is the English language version of this episode. You'll find the Spanish language episode, led by Maximiliano, immediately below this one in your feeds. Jimena studies acoustic communication in frogs and other species, with a focus on how animals' advertisement signals affect not just their intended targets, like mates or competitors, but also unintended targets, like predators. Jimena was also the program officer for the 2022 Animal Behavior Society meeting in Costa Rica, and was instrumental in facilitating a really innovative multilingual conference. So, Jimena Bernal, welcome to the podcast. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here. So much of your work focuses on vocal communication in frogs. And if I think about most communication experiments, they're designed to study dyadic interactions between one signaler and one receiver. But that isn't really how communication actually takes place in nature. That's right. Traditional textbook definitions talk about communication between two individuals, the one that signals and the ones that receive the signals. But as we all know very well, there are usually others paying attention to the signals. We all love those gossips. And it's very important in many systems to get information that others may not be intending for us. So yeah, communication in nature is a lot more complex than traditional textbook definitions. In particular, much of your work is focused on eavesdropping. Could you just define eavesdropping so that we're all on the same page? Of course, yeah, eavesdropping is a great term, and it's basically the use of information in signals by individuals other than the primary target. And even though eavesdropping tends to allude to acoustic communication because of the meaning of like how it is used in common English, it can be used for any sensory modality. So we know that eavesdropping can happen not only with acoustic signals, but with chemical signals, vibrational cues, any kind of sensory modality that you can think of. Well, that's a great point. I hadn't actually thought about that. Do you happen to know, um, have an example of a, a chemical eavesdropping experience? We know a few really interesting cases in ants, and actually Rochelle Adams and her group recently wrote a, a little review, a perspective, trying to elicit more research on this, because we know ants and other social species that use heavily chemical signals could be great system to better understand this, because then they have like, it's dropping on this other ant nest to be able to sneak into the nest. Um, and we know that exploitation of those chemical signals can shape the behavior and social communication in insects. But one of my favorite cases is on bolas spiders, because those are these spiders that have these, they make these big bolas and they release them into the environment to attract their prey. And this is an interesting case, because in that case, what they do is rather than exploring the signal, what the signal is doing, they actually release chemicals that basically exploit this receiver end of the communication system. And then they prey coming lured by this chemical thinking that it's going to be a conspecific and is this brother. Okay, so let's talk about Tungwa frogs. We got a bit of an introduction to the system from Mike Ryan back in season one. Um, but just give us an overview of the communication environment that Tungura frogs are living in. Who are they meaning to communicate with, 
and who is eavesdropping on their calls. I'm so glad that my boss here and took this first step talking about Tunga frogs. He is actually the one that started all this system, which is now one of the main systems to understand animal communication. So Tunga frogs are really small frogs. People see them in photos and they think they're going to be big, but they're just about an inch long and they look like a piece of dirt. So a little brownie thing. But despite the cryptic look and not very appealing, they have amazing voices. And that's why they've been styled so much. And they can be found in Meso and Central America, North or South America. And they have a licking system in which males come during the rainy season and they aggregate in the spawns and start calling and calling like crazy to attract females. The males can produce, they produce a wine that sounds and they can add secondary components that are really brief bursts uh, that are called chucks. And a male can add from none to up to seven chucks. And any male can add chucks. So when a male is calling by himself, he will do mostly whines, but as other males come to the pond, they start competing and interacting acoustically, adding more chucks. And when they produce calls with chucks, females like them better. So females like those more complex calls with chucks, but those are not the only ones that like call complexity. So tunker frogs are actually eaten by almost everyone in the forest. They are a little yummy snack. And it is so bad that the bat lab in Panama, Rachel Page's lab, her crew calls them the chicken nuggets of the forest <laughs> because everybody loves them and eats them. <laughs> and among those, the two main eavesdroppers in the system are frog-eating bats and the frog-body midges. So when a male tungra frog is calling and is calling their heart out, trying to attract a female to mate, there are these frog-eating bats and frog-body midges that use the same call and they use it to detect recognize their prey, localize it, and go there. And the frog eating bats come and they eat the frog right away. And of course, fitness goes down to zero. With the frog eating midges, it's a little more subtle. They come attracted by the call. They land on the back of the frog and then they walk all the way to the nostril. And that's where they bite them. So they get a blood meal. So like mosquitoes that bite you and me will use like CO2 gradients, temperature gradients, and even visual cues because we're humongous targets. With these little frogs, the frog pattern midges depend exclusively on the frog called. So they're hearing these frogs, get to them, and bite them. And some of your earliest work looked at the relationship between whether Tungra frog males included those chucks and the attractiveness then of those calls to eavesdroppers. Yeah, so there was this classic work that was done by Stan Wren and Mike Ryan. And they show that these complex skulls, the ones with chucks, are more attractive to females. And then later on, work by Mike Ryan and Merlin Torrell show that these skulls were more attractive also to the bats. So that was really neat. And then fast forward two decades or more, and then I came across these frog biting midges. And it's a little bit of an interesting story because I was very ignorant on hearing in insects, which actually work on my favor. <laughs> I was raised as a herpetologist, so I knew very little about insects. And at that point, I was like, oh, what about the flies? Do they care if it's a complex call or not? So I set up an experiment, as I will have done with the frogs. <laughs> so okay. I had the speakers that were two meters apart. And from one speaker, I would play simple calls like whines, tung, tung. And from the other one, we chucks, tung, And that's how we test the frogs. And lo and behold, I found that the flies also care and that they were able to hear 
the calls with the chalks. They were preferentially attracted to those. So I'm like, that is really neat because here you have a system in which you have one signal and these different receivers with very different ear morphologies and sens sensitivities. Female frogs, bats and flies, they all have converged not only on using the same signal, but having the same preferences. What I did not anticipate then is when I was trying to publish it, people were like, no, that's not possible. How? And I was like, what? How? I don't know how. This is what they're doing. <laughs> and then I realized that based on what we knew on insect hearing, it just was not possible. We will not expect the flies on one hand to hear the chalks and two to respond so from, from far away. And I could not explain it, but I went back and I tested it again. <laughs> this time using natural calls and I found the same thing. So I'm like, well, this is real. But I think that this is one of the cases in which being a naive observer coming into the system of the flies ended up being helpful. I'm going to ask whether there's been any clarity since that original finding as to how this might be possible. Oh, totally. So it was really interesting because at that point, uh, given the reviewers, I was surprised. I'm like, oh, I don't even know this was not possible. And it was really interesting after that paper came out, uh, Ron Hoy from Cornell contacted me and he was very sweet. And he said, hey, I actually was one of the reviewers and I'm very intrigued. Bring your little bits to my lab. I'm like, of course. <laughs> so... At that point, we started looking for an ear and we thought they really needed a tympanic ear because he asked me to do some behavioral experiments. And I went back to Panama and I will play a speaker from 20 meters away from the forest. And on the other side, there was, it was the canal, the Panama Canal. So they couldn't be coming from the other side and I still get them from the forest. So clearly they were approaching long distances. So I went with the little midges and we started to look for a tympanic ear and we look everywhere in the body because tympanic ears have evolved in insects many times from many different structures. It's relatively easy, quote unquote, to evolve an ear for an insect. You only need a tympanic ear. You need three things, a thin membrane that will vibrate with the sound, a cavity of air behind that allows it to move, and then sensory cells that detect that and send it to an integration center or little brain. And that can happen like in any place where the exoskeleton thins out. So they have ears like everywhere, in their head, in their wings, in the abdomen, in the legs, in the thorax, anywhere. So we were just looking for that anywhere. And lo and behold, we found one and we're like, okay, this is it in the prothorax. And we had these three features. So we were very sure that that could be an ear. And then we got funding, we got excited to test it. And lo and behold, we shine a laser to where we thought there was the ear and nothing happened. <laughs> so instead of vibrating with the sound we were playing, it just, it wasn't vibrating much. So we're like, uh oh. So with that, we decided to go back and look at the antennae. And we knew that mosquitoes here with the antennae because they use it for mating. However, it was, and it's still kind of, some people still believe that they can only hear in the near field. And that's very close to the sound source within one wavelength. So because of that, we had rule out antennae, but now we're learning a lot more about antennae and all the studies are showing that the antennae were underestimated. They're actually amazing, amazing sensory detectors and they work really well. So now we know they're using their antennae. That's such a cool story because I think it really, like you said, it really shows the value of bringing people from very different worlds of expertise to ask questions of the same system questions that an entomologist would have just never asked because they would have assumed it was impossible. So I think that's so cool. 
I agree. And I think, honestly, it's really cool in perspective. But at the time, I felt so ignorant and mm. kind of stupid for even doing it that way. And <laughs> I just treated them like frogs. <laughs> and what do the frog biting midges gain by prioritizing calls with chop? So what, why should they care about what the call of their prey sounds like? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we did a few experiments to look into that. And we at first thought that maybe the ones with the chucks were easier to localize. We know the properties of the chucks made them easier to localize for tympanic ears. <laughs> so like it's been tested with the bats, like Rachel Page has shown that the bats have the ability to better localize complex calls when the environment is complex. So I tried that with the flies, and at least when you only look at where they land, they are equally good at landing on a speaker that is playing a frog call with wines or without, with chalks or without chalks. It may be that they follow different paths, but they're so tiny and they only fly in complete darkness. So darkness. So we haven't been able to check the paths yet, but it's something that is on my to-do list. And then we also look at somehow quality, maybe the males that produce calls with chalks are bigger or somehow healthier. And that's not the case either. Males that are producing chalks are about the same size as the other males. But what we realize is that call complexity is correlated with abundance of the other males because they use it to compete acoustically. If you hear calls with chalks, you're more likely to go to an area in which there's more abundance of frogs. So we argue that that increase the effectiveness of the attacks and may have been one of the benefits that the flies get when they're queuing on these calls. So there are lots of moving pieces here in this system. Male trying to attract females, but also risking attracting bats and frog biting midges. Females who want to find the best male, but who are also presumably want to avoid those same predators. And then the other males who hear males' calls and need to decide what to do in response. So how do you expect eavesdroppers to shape the evolution of calling behavior in the species? Yeah, this is an excellent point. I always say that it is hard to be a male, well, a male frog, male tungar frog, <laughs> because they are trying to call and then they get all these eavesdroppers. So I think eavesdroppers can play an important role shaping not only the ecology, but also the evolution of calling behavior. And we know from many studies that there are a lot of strategies that signalers use to avoid eavesdroppers. Like the basic one is to stop signaling, but you can also reduce this rate of your signal. We even know extreme cases in which some signalers have stopped signaling completely. Like it's the case of the crickets and that are attacked by the ormia flies in Hawaii. There are even some cases of species that have moved into using a different sensory modality. So I would like to argue that if droppers do play a strong role shaping these communication signals, and uh, even in complex and subtle ways. So um, I think that we're just starting to understand the emerging properties of these communi communication networks. And for instance, recently, one of my students, Brian LeBell, former student, he just graduated, uh, he did this really neat study where he looked at the Tungar frogs are all calling. And we all have been thinking for many years that the main driver for call complexity, basically how ornamented their signals are, is what our males are, male-male competition. However, he used this really neat analysis on a big data set that we had, and it was really neat because what he found is that actually these little flies are mediating this call complexity, and they're dampening the effect of male-male competition. 
So when you take both into account, we realize that they can have a much larger role than we ever anticipated. So I want to close this section by thinking about the future of studying networks of animal communication. Because, of course, there's a reason that so much work focuses on the dyad. It's tractable and relatively simple. And as you add in more and more intended and unintended receivers, the environment becomes incredibly complex. So what advances have you seen that allow researchers to capture and decipher some of that complexity? You bring up an excellent point. So I, I love this complexity because it really reflects what I think happens in nature. And I think the combination of looking at the simple systems versus the attic interactions and then adding these extra players makes it particularly valuable. But as you pointed out, we are getting access to new technologies, new systems. So I think that, um, for instance, the use of microphone arrays. So the way that now you can deploy multiple microphones and also with high-speed cameras being not as expensive as they used to be, we're getting access to equipment and technologies that allow us to track multiple players at the same time. And I think that will be very valuable for how we understand communication networks. Is that work with the microphone arrays and the cameras exclusively in the lab, or can you deploy that in the field? Both. Yeah. So you can do that in the lab and in the field. And we've been, I mean, not only with the microphone arrays, but uh, also you can use multi-speaker systems. And now you can track multiple individuals even going to the different speakers. So I think there will be value on using those approaches both in the lab and in the field. I think let's leave things there for now. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about your scientific journey and your efforts to increase communication between researchers in the US and Latin America. First, here's a two minute takeaway. Sexual selection often favors the evolution of highly conspicuous mating signals. But, as Jimena has mentioned, communication among organisms rarely occurs through secret channels. Instead, signals sent to target receivers are transmitted through the environment, which comes with the risk of detection by non-target receivers. Some of these receivers are enemies, such as predators, parasites, and parasitoids, that capitalize on the conspicuous signals of their prey to obtain resources. Yet, signalers are not without strategies to minimize the risk of emitting a signal. Many signalers assess and respond to variation in predation risk and can defend themselves through risk-dependent behaviors. Hi, my name is Brian Level. I'm the current sound engineer of this podcast and also just recently wrapped up my PhD in Jimena Bernal's lab at Purdue University. For part of my PhD research, I examined the effects of a calling Tungara frog's swatting defense that targets eavesdropping frog-biting midges. When under attack, these frogs attempt to swat off the blood-feeding flies with their arms and legs between calls. Because the frogs call in water, the swats elicit a series of water ripples that propagate across the water surface. Previous work has shown that call-induced water ripples elicit more elaborate calls in rival males. But the potential effects of swat-induced ripples remained untested. To test this, I conducted behavioral experiments in the lab in which I isolated the effects of airborne and ripple stimuli of a calling swatting male on his rival's signaling behavior. The swat-induced ripples indeed caused the rival to increase his call elaboration. This effect has potential fitness implications for these frogs. 
In subsequent female choice and predation experiments with eavesdropping French-lipped bats, females found the rival to be more attractive than the swatting male, while the bats exhibited no preference. Eavesdropping frog-biting midges may thus dynamically shape the relative fitness of males that compete for mating opportunities. Their influence extends beyond their victim by indirectly affecting their victim's rival's signaling behavior and by altering female mating decisions. This research highlights the complexity of communication networks and suggests that eavesdropping micropredators can have significant roles in shaping the evolution of signals and communication systems. Thank you so much for listening. Without further ado, I return you to Dr. Jimena Bernal. Welcome back. We are listening to Dr. Jimena Bernal, Professor of Biological Sciences at Purdue University. Jimena, welcome back. Thank you. For the section where our guests suggest a topic, you propose a theme of bilingualism. One of the mechanisms that perpetuates the gap in scientific development between the global north and developing countries is the language barrier. Tell us about your research journey and how it has been affected by language barriers as well as driven by specific privileges that you may have enjoyed. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent point. English is the main language for communicating science. And we know very well that it biases the findings that we amplify and how we think about the world. And there has been recent work that has shown that review papers that do not consider styles that are in non-English languages are biased and dismiss a lot of science that is being done in the global South. So definitely a big factor. But not only affects how we create science and the world we understand, but who gets to participate. And I was very fortunate because even though I did not go to a bilingual school, so in Colombia, you can go to a school in which you learn English as a little kid. I did not go to one of those. I actually started, uh, we started English when we were in high school. So like it was very late. However, I was very fortunate that my parents thought that English was important. So I would go to basic English classes. But to be honest, I completely underestimated how important it was. I got to college and I was like, yes, I can test out of English one and two. And then I had to take a few. And then when I took the last class and said, that's it for me, never again. <laughs> I'm done with English. <laughs> how naive was I? <laughs> and then I look at schools to go to do a PhD and I started looking at all of this. And I was like, oh my goodness. I need to speak English. <laughs> I thought I was done with that. <laughs> and when I came to the PhD program, I had very low level of English. I barely passed the, the exam to be able to be at the A. And I, I think I partly passed it because they asked me, one of the tests was to explain a lecture, uh, like I do a mini lecture. And I'm very like, I just was going all with my hands and everything. They scribe, I move a lot. And they were like, okay, I think she gets a point across. <laughs> but I barely passed it. And on the downside, I feel bad about the students that were in my class the first semester. Like, I could barely communicate with them. And I taught a lab on animal communication. And it was really painful on both sides, let me tell you. And even for me to take like the first classes and everything, I felt I could barely speak English. And it's like, I will open my mouth and a toddler will be speaking. And I was like, that is not what's happening up here. I swear I'm smart. I can think. <laughs> so um, that was really hard. And of course, I had always been a good student. I was, I thought I was smart. And then I, when I was speaking, I felt like it, that was not the case. 
Um, but it was also a very lonely process at the beginning because when I started, I did my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. And in my cohort, we were two international students, but the other one had come to the U.S. to do high school. And then they did college, like the undergrad size here. So um, I just felt that I was the only one that couldn't communicate, um, which made it uh, a little painful. Uh, and I cried a lot that first year. <laughs> Uh, but I think that's one of the challenges you have um, when you come. And it's not only the cultural shock, understanding what is a PhD, like being a grad student is a big difference to what you were doing before. And add on to on top of that, not understanding the culture very well and not even understanding the English. So sometimes I wasn't even sure what was happening because of the language or because of the culture. I'm like, so it's it's challenging to make sense of out of all of that. And I think it's funny, but you are very different in a different language. Um, and we know that, for instance, there's a study that recently showed that in Colombia, English proficiency is, is closely correlated with socioeconomic status. And that is really troublesome because we all know that talent is everywhere, opportunities are not. So by limiting the way we do science to English really limits who gets a chance to be inspired by science and to Think about being a scientist as a potential path. It is very interesting that you felt that you were being the only one that were struggling. Because in my personal experience, I feel that we all feel the same and we all feel alone, right? That's an excellent point. And thank goodness for social media. Like now you see people talking about this. So I'm old. When I started my PhD, it was 20 years ago. And no one was talking about it. I was a very, at a very competitive program and everybody was just going on and doing their own work. And no one talked about this language difference. And I only had the students complaining that they couldn't understand me. And I'm like, I don't understand you either. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that, um, I think that what I like about now of having this conversation, I still, we still need to do more. But I feel that uh, it's also difficult for people that only speak one language to understand how challenging it is to think and to be eloquent in a different language. So people underestimate it. And I think they judge very quickly. And I felt that at the beginning that like they will be dismissive right away. And I'm like, no, give me a chance. I just need you to walk with me and like through this path of not knowing the right words or not knowing how to pronounce them. Um, so yeah, like it just, it's upsetting. Like I remember very clearly I have this memory. I was trying to make a case in a discussion about evolution <laughs> and I didn't know. And I said, so the word island <laughs> and I read it and I said, I'm like Iceland. And then they were all confused and then they all started laughing. And I remember everybody was laughing and I was so lost. I'm like, why are they laughing? And trying to think about like evolution and islands and all of these things. And they're all laughing and confused. And I'm like, so it can be just very frustrating and not the most efficient way to have a conversation about science. <laughs> How do you believe language barriers accumulate with other categories of inequality, such as race, gender, or socioeconomical status to increase the challenges faced by scientists from the global south? Well, as I was just mentioning, we know that English proficiency is highly correlated with socioeconomic status. And we know that race, in many countries in Latin America, it's also correlated with socioeconomic status. So all those dimensions are at the intersection in which a lot of people that have great talent, 
may not have uh, opportunities to learn English to be able to continue advancing as expected for many scientists uh, because they don't have the level of English that they need. So I think it adds yet another burden to who gets to participate. Through your career, you have confronted inequalities within the scientific system in many countries and institutions. In response, you have proposed concrete actions and developed various strategies to combat these inequalities. What are the concrete strategies that institutions and scientific communities can adopt to reduce the barriers imposed on us by language, race, gender, or socioeconomical status? Well, that's a deep question. We could talk about it for hours. <laughs> But I think that we need to start with even low-hanging low -hanging fruit. So even publishing in different languages, like having your abstract, I think that every scientist should have the abstract at least in the language of where they did the study. And if you did it in a country that speaks English, well, choose one of your preference and have it in the supplemental material, have it somewhere else. That will allow to have a broader audience that can read it. So like that's the easy stuff. And when we have meetings, so as Matt mentioned, when we organized the Animal Behavior Society meeting last year, we made a conscious effort to try to break those barriers and allow bilingual access. We were running this meeting in Costa Rica. So we spoke English, we spoke Spanish. I tried my best to include Portuguese speaking. Uh, I actually practiced like, the, the whole year before the meeting. I was on Duolingo doing Portuguese. So I could say just a few sentences in Portuguese here and there uh, because I wanted really hard to make everyone welcome. And we knew we had people from Brazil coming to the meeting. So um, I think it's just going that little bit, putting that little bit of effort to make it accessible. And that's something that we all scientists can do. And I even have conversations with my students in lab meetings about the wording we use in titles, in abstracts, not using slang. So sometimes using like catchy slang for sentences or for titles can be really fun but it make it tricky for non-native speakers. So we have those conversations or even using phrasal verbs. Those are hard. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I'm like, no phrasal verbs because those make it harder. You need to have a higher English proficiency to be able to follow those. So in my lab, for instance, we do all those little things that are conscious efforts to opening up for people that are like, if you need to use overly complex English, don't. Use basic words that anyone can understand. So that on one hand. And then I think that societies like the Animal Behavior Society are working really hard to make that effort. And I, it's very uh, gratifying to see that. And then institutions, I think, perhaps institutions, universities, I think that there is still a long way to go because the way international students are welcome is like, come on, you need to learn English, assimilate, can you TA or not? Like, And I think that there should be an extra layer there of like, okay, we know how hard this is um, and support. And even if your English is or is not beyond like, it's not, can you teach or not? Provide that extra support that allows you um, to keep improving your English, uh, but in a way that is also kind. <laughs> it's not just because you need to teach it, not because all of these things. It's because it's important for you and your life. Um, so I can think about ways in which universities are trying to do it, but it's like yet another workshop that is listed 
those are just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much that could be done to feel people more welcome, value, yeah, and embrace other languages too. What specific actions do you think are ideal for addressing difficulties at each stage of the scientific career and overcoming them? So I don't think there is a cookie cutter answer to that. I think the way we all learn a different language and relate to a culture will be slightly different, but I can take you a little bit about how it went for me and my approach to it. So as I mentioned, my English was not very good when I first started my PhD and I was really worried about it. And <laughs> because I knew it was a big hurdle to pass. And so I actually started reading a lot about how to even understand English because I, I felt that in English, it's kind of funny because at first it seems easy because we're familiar with songs, with movies. Although to be honest, now I understand the songs. I'm like, what? That song said that? <laughs> I'm horrified of some of the songs. I thought maybe say something right. I didn't understand. And now I know I'm like, I didn't know it said that. Uh, but at the beginning, it seems kind of easy, but you very easy. My feeling was that very quickly I reached a point in which it was really hard to get better. And I will just read papers. It will take me forever. And every single word that I didn't know, I would like, like the dictionary. I will use it. And I read books about how to write that are written in English for English speaking um, people. And I will, every time I will just look at online, like synonymous. And I, that point, the University of Austin, they had a one workshop that I remember was really good. And they were like, okay, these are, the main points in which people can struggle, like transitioning, how to start sentences when they're transitioning. And they gave us a list of words that were good for transitioning. And actually, I recently found a little piece of paper. I'm like, oh, look at it. <laughs> I carried it around all the time because I had, and I started accumulating lists of words that were useful. And to be honest, I have a list of words that also I never say. Like there are words that I know I can't pronounce and they're bad if I mispronounce. So I'm like, I think we all have this list. I'm like, okay. And so I'm like, I need synonyms for these words because I don't want to say these words in public. <laughs> um, so you you find your own tricks. And for me, it's really funny because I I love like structure and logic. So I know a lot of the rules in English. So when I sometimes editing manuscripts for my students, some of them even mention like, oh my goodness, uh, because I'm like, based on this rule, this is not appropriate. <laughs> And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. But yeah, that makes sense because I know all the rules and all the grammar really well because that was the skeleton, the foundation I needed to feel comfortable writing science in English. And then I felt that then I advanced. And now I'm at the pro level in which my students, especially the undergrads, are teaching me slang and all of these fun words that I never know. And they have, yeah, they just find it hilarious because... There was a time in which I would speak and everybody was like, I will speak in English. And my friends were like, why are you so formal? And I'm like, I'm not being formal because all the words I knew were from papers. And I still feel like I know very few adjectives in English <laughs> because I never use them. <laughs> so then I had to try to learn other words to make it less formal. And now I'm in the part in which I'm learning like fun and new slang from the kids nowadays. <laughs> so the challenge changes. <laughs> And from your current uh, professor and faculty position, what other strategies have you experienced as effective ways to increase inclusion in science? Oh, there's so many. Uh, that's such a broad question. Uh, so what I always try to keep in mind is that I want to create an environment in which everyone can be and bring their authentic self to where we are. 
keeping that at the front of your mind is really important because it's like whatever people do, you're not there to judge them. You're not there to make a mini me. I don't want other Jimenas going out to the world and doing exactly what I do. I can share how I did things, what things work with me, but then everybody should find their own way and express it their own way. And I think that's important to keep in mind at the daily interactions, at the way you set up conversations in your lab and across all scales. And that translates into many different strategies. Uh, but I think that's the core, what I always try to keep in mind, that I'm not there to force people into things that I think are the right thing, but trying to understand where they're coming from and helping them maximize their potential, but always be their authentic self. I honestly feel that, <laughs> to be honest, when I first started in science, I wasn't myself. I even the first talk that I gave in English, first I was freaking out, but second, I went back to the lab and there was an grad student from Brazil and he looked at me and he said, Ximena, I can't believe you can be this serious. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. I've never seen you so serious. And it was partly because I was terrified, but partly because I also was impersonating the people I saw doing science and they're all serious and they're like, mm, so I did that. And that's not who I am. And I feel that I've been slowly bringing myself out. Of course, after I got tenure, I'm like, can't get rid of me now. <laughs> but even now, I feel like now that I'm full professor, I'm so happy because I feel like I finally can be my full authentic self and not be so concerned about how people are judging me and judging me and what that may mean for my career. And like, I try to do this with the students, anyone around me and reminding them that as long as they're being true to themselves, that's the right way to go. The theme of our conversation has really been about communication of ideas of people of different backgrounds and of frogs and their receivers. You have developed an approach to communicate biology to undergraduates that involves Pokemon. What does that look like? Yeah, this has been one of my recent favorite projects. And it is one of my favorite projects for several reasons. On one hand, it's a lot of fun. And on the other hand, it was a project that I co-created and co-developed with my 16-year-old son, Tomas. So we actually co-created and co-taught a class that is called PokeBio, Exploring Biology Through Pocket Monsters. And it's been fantastic because talking about language barriers, I think that one of the language barriers that people have when they like biology is all the jargon and all the species names. So I kept meeting people that said, oh yeah, like what you do is so cool, but I will never, I could never do it. Like, oh, this is science and all the species names and all of that. I'm like, of course you could do it. And then people see that's a barrier, but we see all these kids that know all the species names of the dinosaurs. And then if you like Pokemon, you know all the Pokemon, like all the names and if anyone knows about Pokemon, you not only know all the names, but all the natural history, what they do, what are their attacks, and what are their weaknesses. So we saw this great opportunity to kind of break that barrier and reach out to people that were interested in science and biology, but were not excited about all that jargon and all that came in. So we had this class that we taught at the Honors College that brought all the students from different careers who were really into Pokemon. So that was fantastic. And we thought about the ecology, the evolution and conservation biology of Pokemon. And it's been one of the best classes that I think I ever had because for the first time I found myself not only talking about the generalities, which I think when I teach science, I'm also like, okay, this is the pattern. These are the generalities. But in this class, some of the students were like, hmm, but what about this Pokemon? Like, this is, this is very unusual. They do this and that. I'm like, well, actually, there is a species in nature that does this. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah. 
Nature is amazing, but we usually, when we teach those, especially those intro classes, we don't tell them the cool stuff, the exceptions. And they were amazed of hearing how nature is so diverse, so unique. So that was an unexpected side effect of teaching this class that we got into all these cool, unusual cases that they thought were unique to an imaginary world. But no, nature has great imagination. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jimena. That sounds like such a fabulous class. I wish I could have taken it. Jimena Ronald, thank you so much for sharing your research and your experiences with us. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I love the idea of being able to speak science both in English and Spanish, and I'm very grateful for you providing this space for us. Thank you both. The Animal Behavior Podcast is created by a talented team of animal behavior researchers. We have three excellent content editors, Nico Hensley, an NSF postdoctoral fellow studying the evolution of neurosensory systems and their impact on animal communication and speciation at Cornell University. Camilla Chenny, who studies tool use, object play, and animal innovation in non-human primates. And Logan James, a postdoctoral fellow at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute studying acoustic communication in frogs and birds. Our communications director is Casey Patmore a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh studying the behavior of burying beetles. You can follow us on Twitter at AnimalBehavePod or check out our website at AnimalBehaviorPod.com. Our education team makes lesson plans and classroom materials that you can incorporate into your undergraduate classes. You can find those materials on our website. The education team is Emily McLean, an assistant professor of biology at Oxford College at Emory University, Georgia Lambert, a PhD candidate studying parental cooperation in burying beetles at the University of Edinburgh, and Smile Chaudhry, a recent Master of Research graduate in Biological Sciences from the University of Exeter, who worked on camouflage and escape responses in green shore crabs. Our sound director is Brian Lovell, a PhD candidate studying the evolution of acoustic signals in Jimena Bernal's lab at Purdue University. This season, I'll be recording my side of most conversations in the Cornell Broadcast Studios with engineering support from Bert Odom-Reed. Our art is all produced by animal behavior researchers. Our logo was designed by Adelaine Johon Montey. Our theme music is by Sally Street. And transitions are by Andre Gonzolsch. I direct and host the show along with my co-host, Amy Strauss. We receive financial support from the Animal Behavior Society. Finally, if you like the show, then please help us by telling someone else about the show and leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.